previous poets in this series that we, we uh, commenced a few years back is Jim Lenfasty, who's here today, and Lewis Jenkins and Hyde Erdrich. And this year, it's our honor to present poet Ed Bach Lee. Now, for those of you who don't know the Pancake Poetry Series, I'm sure that's been tweeted worldwide by now, I'm sure. <laughs> we know at least on campus. Um, it was founded in honor of librarian Marcia Pancake, who's with us today. And her love of poetry was demonstrated in the countless readings and poetry events that she organized when she was here at the libraries until her retirement in 2007. And Marcia, we're really indebted to you for thinking of this wonderful way of bringing people together annually and celebrating poetry. So thank you for that great idea. Today's po uh, poetry reading is jointly sponsored by the libraries and the Friends of the University Libraries. And I want to make sure and thank Malika Grant uh, over there, uh, our Associate Librarian for English and also African and African American Studies. She organized the event today. And also Cecily Marcus, Curator of the Upper Midwest Literary Archives. And of course, I do want to also thank the Friends of the Libraries, many of whom are here today for their commitment in supporting programs like this. Truly wonderful. And if you're not a member of the Friends of the Libraries, I hope you'll think about joining and helping ensure we have more programs just like this. Now, on to our program. So, if Ed Bach Lee were a music CD, his liner notes would read something like this. A former bartender, a PE instructor, journalist, translator. He was born in South Korea, raised in South Dakota, in North Dakota and later Minnesota. He worked at a variety of jobs as he traveled over a dozen US states and abroad, studied Slavic, East Asian, and Central Asian languages and literature in America, South Korea, Russia, and Kazakhstan, and earned an MFA from Brown University. He shared his work on public radio and MTV, also in journals, anthologies, and on stages across North America, Europe, and Asia. He used to rehearse his poetry in the space now occupied by Glam Dolls Donuts on Nicollet Avenue. He's the recipient of grants from such foundations as McKnight, Jerome, and the National Endowment for the Arts. And if that were not enough, he's also an assistant professor at Metropolitan State University. But wait, there's more. His last book, World, was a winner of the 2012 American Book Award and the 2012 Minnesota Book Award for Poetry. Real Karaoke People, his first book, won the 2006 Penn Open Book Award and an Asian American Literary Award Member's Choice. Fellow American Book Award recipient Sherman Alexei notes that, quote, Ed Bach Lee rocks my socks off. <laughs> Another recipient, Lee Young Lee, said of World, these poems work in powerful concert to give body to an entire world of beauty, terror, loss, grief, and joy. So if Ed were a music CD, how would he sound? Well, we're about to find out. Hold on to your socks, and please welcome Ed Buckley. Thank you, Wendy, and Malika, and everyone who worked to arrange this and does so every year. And thanks to you all for coming out. I'm going to start with 
some new stuff and then go into some older stuff, I think. I'm going to feel the vibe in the room. <clears throat> this new poem is, um, I guess it started with the seed of this fact I heard recently that when we're born, we're 70% water, which is approximately what the Earth is. The Earth is comprised of 70% water. And as we age, we kind of lose it to the point where sometimes when, when you're very old, you're only 50% water. So this is called, some people are nodding. I have no idea why. This is called The Other's Water. Light imprints itself upon our cells. We dance the ballet of midwinter rabbits under full moon, shadowing the past amid strangers' futures. Culture records itself on sheet after sheet of sleep. Sometimes I wonder why I never dream of celebrities. My love does and is the more well-adjusted. I dream of trees whispering to foreign seeds, waking to a life lit lyrically. All liquid remembers where it came from, thus is song. You were sad that afternoon, so I drank happiness enough for both of us. Our love, the symmetry of days surrounded by sizzling snow and rain. I remember opening you with words before actually ever meaning a thing. You were a vision, and I the light, and I flooded into the dream you later watercolored, a stuffed animal building a driftwood fire in an oil drum by the sea, wind thrashing, hurricane, all desire locked in the body's ancient water is sweet. As it's never what you say, but the melody, a choral tapestry of infinitesimal bodies, to listen to any rain is to hear the history of love in love with thick, wild grain. I have always loved to be fooled. To love to be fooled is the history of fools. To love history is the love of fools, and so on. The rain keeps changing its tune. I sip your lips by the window, savoring Wisdom. Um, so I spent some time working on poems in the first book, and I remember getting, uh, I moved into an attic, and I was determined I'm not going to leave this place until I'm finished with this manuscript and it's published. And of course, it lasted several years longer <laughs> than I had anticipated. But while I was there, I remember hearing things in the walls. And um, I would hear like scratches and, and, and sounds in the walls. And I thought, oh, OK, um, it must be birds or you know, squirrels. How nice. How nice to have pets that you don't have to care <laughs> for. And then you know, by, the, by a six months pass or whatever, eight months, and I would hear um, more chirping 
And I thought, oh, it's not squirrels, it's birds. That's nice, there's a family of birds in my walls. Um, and then, of course, after a year or so, I woke up one night and there was a bat swooping. And um, I realized I had just been in total denial the whole time. You don't want to admit that there's probably 5,000 bats in your walls. <laughs> so anyway, this, this poem is kind of about that. Four Orders of Silence. The exterminator arrived to seal the crevices under our eaves with stocking-like fishnets. The bats fly out, he assured, and can't come back in. For days afterward, I listened to the infant bats still trapped in the walls, their crazed mammalian mothers attacking a corner street lamp with claws and tiny teeth. By winter, only snow on black mountains, a coal train scraping past, spice in my dead father's blue sweater, the last time he visited and asked me to oil a hinge in my heart. <clears throat> How's everyone doing? You know, it's good? It's, uh, it's National Poetry Month and I have a treat for you. Um, especially for those of you who are or were, it's not a treat actually, um, it's, well you'll see, you'll see, it's, it's a little harrowing, but um, especially if you were around um, the time, you were alive around the time of the JFK assassination. That's what I mean, it's a treat, but it's not something to, you know. Okay, this is um, documentation. It's, it's sort of about, uh, it's about a friend who in many ways introduced me to poetry and um, he kind of introduced me more than to poetry and he did introduce me to poetry. He gave me um, a copy of Rilke, Rilke's letters to a young poet and some poems at a time when I didn't really know what poetry was, or I thought I did. And he, he introduced, he was an artist and he passed away in his mid-twenties. Um, we were best friends. We lived together for a number of years on and off. He visited me in Korea. He was a Korean adoptee at a time when I didn't have any Asian American friends, and nor did he. And so we, we became friends, but not knowing anything or what it meant to actually be Asian American. Um, I knew a little more because my parents are both Korean. And it was sort of like the blind leading the blind though. Um, we would have these discussions about, I see now they were about culture and race, but we didn't even have a vocabulary for those concepts. And many of those concepts in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years have been invented. Um, you know, we didn't have, I'm sure it, was a, it existed back then, but we didn't have the word, you know, globalization even, I don't even, I don't think. Not the concept as it's um, commonly thought of today. 
And so I think when I look back what about this, when I was writing this poem, I was looking back at more like the mead-like marrow of a life, a provisional life um, that in many ways he taught me, in many ways he was older and probably in soul. And um, he created all this artwork and, and poems and writings and uh, I have a bunch of them now and it's just when I think back on my life then and now how much hopefully I've grown um, and where he would have been because he was so much further than me at that time. So this is sort of about that. It's called documentation. Everyone thought we were gay because we fought and talked trash and then made up like brothers sharing a prison cell in heaven. What to make of two young Asian men back then suspect for arguing art and poetry when the artist has long black hair and cheekbones like a bird of war. He read the first poem I ever showed anyone, said nothing. Then a day later left Rilke on the table in the kitchen to slap common sense out of me page by page. I was just beginning to feel how the last third of the alphabet is thicketed, more complex than the first and second parts, maybe as the last third of life will be. He was dreaming in smoky pigments and for days would chase them, literally splashing whole walls of abandoned warehouses to try to ignite some secret door to grace. This month in Chicago, I went back to that fungal bar that bought our phony 19-year-old chop sake accents, then watched the sun fall like a bloody egg. In a Koreatown that now feels underwater, I understood that only the dead finally belong to their bodies. The rest of us change, and that friction is the blessed pain. And I promised Kim I'd write about you, a Thai stripper, much older, 25 or 26, with three other names depending on what you knew, who loved musicals, Basquiat, Munch, but couldn't seem to decide between us two, finally picking some dude in a red BMW throbbing gangster rap, and the flaws in our hearts were forever soldered brokenly together. She was lost, like so many other pretty Asian girls here, cut their own soft flesh with that exotic double-edged sword, now barely a Vespa leaking blue smoke in a hot August wind. The next year, I tried my luck in Korea, teaching English, but this time, when he and I met and wept, it was over soju, not bourbon and not for common disgrace, but a sighing sense of floating without having to swim. I found myself in the middle of the Tegu woman and him at a pojang matcha tent, slurping rainy fish cakes. It was past dark. My interpretation slurred twofold, but for once I knew who I was and was not to myself. We'd been searching for his biological mother for two weeks. All he had was one brittle mimeographed document with his name and age from the orphanage, Pak Tae-young, four years old, which may or may not have been a fiction. 
The tiny, middle-aged Tegu woman wore pearl-pink rubber slippers and spoke with a bright urgency in her teary, wide-open eyes. I could barely keep up her shigol dialect like flying a kite in a sandstorm. On the second meeting, we visited her in her tiny apartment behind a middle school where she boiled oxtail broth and cut vegetables in the kitchen. The social worker we were there with got the Tegu woman's signature and informed her of the necessity of a blood test. We stayed behind and drank milky, makkali rice wine seated on her yellow linoleum until a voice began to thread my brain. When I went to the bathroom, I saw through a cracked door an older woman dressed in white, bowing repeatedly alone, weeping and muttering a gibberish as if the hoarse, bossy leader of a children's game. Later, I'd learn the tattooed lines on both the old mother and her grown daughter's wrists meant they'd been marked as mediums for the spirit world. Shamans, or maybe just insane. It didn't matter. By then, the blood test came back 96% in the negative, and we knew reality better, but even less of the truth. Three days before he was scheduled to go back to the States, another call came in from the classified ad we'd placed, and this time it was a man. They sat across from each other at the cafe, both chain-smoking, as the man recounted stories involving the ambulance he drove now that he was sober and the fire that took his wife and house years before. I was surprised. He let the man twice reach hard tobacco tawny fingers forward and touch his nose. The next afternoon, the man introduced us to his daughter, and by then, I wasn't sure. By appearances, they could have been siblings. I don't like to tell this story because you don't want your people to look bad when already their names and history are black and charred. But at dinner that night, the girl leaned over and informed me that her father had liver cancer and they needed $700. I chuckled, but he didn't when I told him and signed over the $400 he had in traveler's checks, surely knowing we'd never see the old man and girl again. If the past is a rope to somewhere, it can also wrap your throat. He's dead 12 years, and I don't think of him every day anymore, or the two apartments we shared, the kitten that for three years remained unnamed before running away, or the many words and whole episodes of that crazy Tegu woman's and man's lives I now know I mistranslated. Others visit instead. But I know he's there in my searching, and not just him, but that old woman in white muslin I glimpsed behind the cracked door, speaking her own kind of poetry so the spirits wouldn't be so lonely. This morning, I listened to birds talking to one another about a snake that had apparently entered the yard. The scrub jays informed the finches, who informed the squirrels, and the jackrabbits, and so on, as maybe it's always been. And I dimly recalled a story he told me during the first week of our friendship. As we drifted off to sleep, spinning, I asked if he had any memories of the homeland, and he spoke something of his birth father, who he thought was a barber, 
dying suddenly of some illness, yes, and a beautiful mother who did all she could to keep him. There was a sister, though I can't remember if she was older or younger, and the wart on the back of his little hand burned off when first he arrived in America, the scar of which he always carried like an amulet. This part is true. All the rest is what I was sent to interpret for you. So another new poem. This is uh, Desert of Dreams. I wrote it in the high desert where, where I've been spending a lot of a part, parts of the year for the last several years. And um, the high desert is different than the low desert. In the high desert, there's all these um, huge boulders and um, these crazy yucca and Joshua trees that look like part palm tree, part cactus, part human. Um, they were named by the Mormons when they first arrived after Yeshua. Um, and while you're there, you, or at least I, at, at, at all times, you, you, you know, there's also sand because it's the desert and you can imagine knowing what this was 40,000 years ago, a rainforest what it was even before that, which was the bottom of the ocean. So you're walking around um, on sand, knowing that there were probably, you know, maybe up, I don't know how many thousands of feet of water and life swimming all around you, and you can still see remnants. Um, so this is sort of about, inspired by that, Desert of Dreams. In the desert burning, there is a dream but no one can find it. God hid it in leaves eons ago when that rainforest wore rivers like necklaces and his parents were calling his name. So too, at the center of my life, stares a beautiful wound I love to wrap each night and awaken by the ocean. Um, all right, we're about halfway, so I'm going to give you that treat. <laughs> um, about the power of poetry. And so some of you might have been around when um, Robert F. Kennedy was vying for the Democratic nomination after his brother had been assassinated, I'm sure. Um, and it almost uh, a little over a week ago, um, April 4th, well, almost two weeks now, in 1968, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And when that happened, Robert F. Kennedy was on his way to Indianapolis, Indiana, to give a speech in a largely African-American, fairly impoverished or very impoverished uh, neighborhood. Um, so he gets off the plane and, and the handlers come and say, you can't speak. Um, you know, Martin Luther King has been shot and killed. If you speak, there could be riots. Um, you know, you want to avoid that area. And so Robert F. Kennedy said, no, you know, I, I won't give the speech I was planning, but I'll, I want to speak. Um, and Robert F. Kennedy 
even more so than his older brother, were huge fans of poetry and brought poetry into White House functions, um, into speeches. And uh, he sort of put this, this speech together. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read an excerpt of it. It's pretty short, though, very short. Um, so he gets there. He gets to the site. He steps to the podium, and he realizes they, don't, they have no idea that Martin Luther King is dead. And they're cheering and applauding and you know, smiles everywhere. And so he has to break the news in this part of town where he's clearly not um, a native. And so just listen how he uses poetry um, in, the, in the middle of the speech. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you for a minute or so this evening because I have some very bad news, sad news for all of you. And I think sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Gasps, you know, wails in the background. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and whites amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that has spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poet, Aeschylus, he once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be black or whether they be white. There's a burst of applause. So I ask you tonight to return home to say a prayer for the family of Martin Luther King. Yeah, that's true, but more importantly, to say a prayer for our own country, which 
all of us love, a prayer for understanding and the compassion of which I spoke. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it is not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. More applause. Let us dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. And then there's applause. There are no riots. People peacefully go home. And that's April 4th, 1968, almost 45 years ago today. And then you all know the history. Robert F. Kennedy, not long after that, is shot. Um, I'm just going to read the line of poetry that he quoted that I feel is like the soul of his speech, which just sort of infused everyone in the audience with wisdom. And it's the Greek poet Aeschylus and playwright. Even in our sleep, pain, which cannot forget, falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. So maybe not the treat you were expecting. <laughs> if you, um, I think we're going to take questions towards the end. OK, so I just have a few more. This one is called Sweet Men. Atop their dresser mirror rested a two by four my father used to scratch his back and discipline us. That wood-grained eye-knot like a cougar in the bush. Once, I threw seaweed into my sister's hair at lunch. These were summers of little worth remembering. He hoisted my wrist into the master bedroom and whacked the dull backside of my corduroys. I never once thought of my mother's pale skin splashing against my darker father's. How there where my soul-sucking pleas and hands went useless, they must have sipped one another many hot nights to sleep. I do remember my mother in his bathrobe, once savoring a stringy persimmon past midnight, drips onto stainless steel so slowly warped her wet black hair never longer. Years later, my lover's scent layers my own. Zephyr, cream, dusk all summer. I kiss her lids and take her more deeply in bed, cultivating sorrow, part fear, half prayer, waiting for the moment she begins to drown so I can save her. Some hot days I'll rise afterwards to the kitchen, craving condensed milk and scalded coffee. 
musical ice cubes in mugs for me and her, as my father once loved to sweeten my own silly tears. Speaking of parents, here's another kind of new-ish poem. I don't think I've read this yet. Islands at Night, or no, Island, I changed the title, <laughs> Island Debris. Hold on, I think this is an old version. <laughs> You'll tell me which title you like better, right? <clears throat> All right, here we go. Island Debris. One morning, my father described his dream, and that night, I had a similar one. Pieces of my mother soaring over mountains, bright miles of beach, coral teeth to green glass waves beyond, far past that blank space in the mind where as a family, our flesh is still unified. This was before he died as there is no one word for all that scatters. There is no one heart like an island you can rest on forever in the end. After both remarried, he still fixed her car and they'd go gather mushrooms. Because we have souls, don't we? And sometimes they storm. How many questions do you guys think you have? <laughs> Sometimes I end early and there's like two questions that last, you know, 45 seconds. I've got two questions. You got two questions. Do I have three? <laughs> three, one. Okay, we have three, four. Okay. That... My question will be a request that you read something. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> All right, so I'll read one, a couple more and then take questions. <clears throat> You know, I guess I, I don't think I've ever read this one aloud, so I'm going to read this one because Jim emailed me uh, this past week and mentioned it, so I'll read this for Jim. It's called Heaven. An interview when I thought writing meant articles, analyses, a lapidist's objectivity. Sana had been a Korean prostitute, come to America by way of rape, drugs, abandon. Still, she possessed hope at the core of the hoarsest human voice that one day she would find a soft island of souls overhandled like her own. Coolly, I asked what the tattoo on her inner wrist said before scarred by an electric coil. Flowers destroy their own stems. She exhaled smoke. Sana, 52, 
now just cleaned and cooked ramen, spam and stir fry for the illegal Asian women rotated in every month en route to Arizona, California, New York. This was on Lake Street in Minneapolis, next to a strip mall travel agency and Mexican bakery. Middle-class men from the suburbs and migrant laborers comprised most of their massage clients. Heaven, Sana proclaimed, was the working name of the undocumented sex worker whose death I was covering. Lord Jesus, I remember once I'd open my little arms, heart, body, genuflecting. Lately, I over-contemplate boys and their priests, watch Native American women stumble 3 a.m. streets, think of Japan, Korea, Vietnam, a rice paddy opening watery legs to a mortar shell, M16 hail, each atom bomb's orgasmic bouquet, oily mid-east needs, the finest, Antebellum slaves, wolves, unneutered dogs, the whole animal kingdom. I don't recall all Sana rambled, but unrelatedly, 16 months earlier, my girlfriend had become a cocktail waitress at a high-end strip club downtown. I'd accused her of betraying something sacred we shared, but couldn't find the naked most word. Intimacy, culture, race, I was scared and on unemployment. Madam Sana revealed little more of heaven than what the police report said. Twice she wept, asking for a little loan, then chuckled at our donuts, my handwriting, the rain. In the end, my article was a dressed up skeleton. Heaven had run, and her bosses, a Chinese and white couple with private school children, had sicked their thugs. You can read about it in the paper. They raped and blanketed the anonymous young woman with gasoline, and her spirit blossomed like a secret. In, her spirit blossomed in secret like a history. No one would ever think is anything but a routine incineration near the city dump, a funeral pyre whose black ink rising. I'll try to translate here for you now. Shibalnom, Munyorojo. Okay, I'll read one more and then take some questions. So the title poem in this book is called World, W-H-O-R-L-E-D. And years ago, I heard this fact that seeded in my brain that um, every two weeks the final living speaker of a world language passes away, and with that speaker goes the language. Um, their children, if they have any, and their grandchildren um, no longer know the language. Uh, and often for a lot of these languages, whether they're in the rainforest or on, you know, in Arizona or a native language of some sort somewhere, um, there's no record or even sometimes an alphabet some of these languages, linguists have not even figured out the grammar to. They're so complex and so alien and different. And if you think of languages as a way of looking at the world that is different, um, it's, it's, it's profound that 
by 2050 at this rate, 90% of the world's languages that exist today will have gone extinct. That's nine out of 10 that your children and grandchildren won't even know ever existed. Um, and a lot, of course, along with the language goes the culture, the cosmology, the, the knowledge of history, the alternate views of history, the ways of defining what's important in the world and assigning values to what's important in the world. Because a lot of these, obviously, these cultures and these peoples aren't from market economies. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is it's, I find it so interesting that, you know, when the peregrine falcon or the yellow spotted liver toad or the white barren sycamore tree are in danger, people rally to support that. And everyone across the universe or the world, I mean, knows um, that's a bad thing when species are dying out, right? We know that intuitively. Yet, when we hear of cultures and languages dying, or at least languages, we call that progress. They're moving to the city, they're getting jobs, they're moving into shanty towns and catching cholera and working as, in, for, as slaves for the next 14 generations in shanty towns. That's progress. It is, I guess, for some people. Anyway, so. Um, when I heard that fact years ago, I was thinking of my father, who grew up during the Japanese occupation in Korea. From, that was from 1910 to 1945, and the Japanese occupied Korea and um, did just horrible, heinous things, and physically and sexually and mentally, but they knew that to really colonize a people and to subjugate them and to strip them of their own will and dignity is to take the language. And so my father, when he was in grade school, was given a Japanese name and told he could only speak Japanese. He and his friends could only speak Japanese or they would be punished. And so a lot of people from that generation are really fucked up because that happened. And then the Korean War, which decimated the country, um, happened. And then you had half the country separated by, you know, Soviet ideology and the other half by capitalist ideology and then you know there and and um and then you know my father came here and was and spoke English and so thinking about fortunately it didn't take hold and the Japanese were forced to leave in in the mid 40s from South Korea but or what was Korea, there was no North or South at that time. Um, so I was thinking about all these things and what taking a language or a langu languages that evaporate like cultures means to the world, or at least to me and my family. Okay, this is world. Dear speaker in a future age, when only a handful of tongues remain, I write this to you as a song, even as I know it won't do. Even as I know, the words I speak are devastation. I don't want, I don't expect you to understand, but I want you to know there's another language in which I dream. Sometimes I think it's Korean. Other nights, my dead harmony, sewing a broken room back together. 
or my neighbors, a family of Ojibwas welding their minivans, cinder blocks teetering. Summer evenings, the Hmong girl and boy echo hide and seek with cousins down the street. Or this spring, Juan, the Mexican kid next door, suddenly 14, shuffling steps on the corner, baggies stuffed in his shorts, truant every afternoon. I see him some days through my window, rapping in a back alley, alone in broken English to his iPod, as I've seen him since he was 10. Youngest of four undocumented brothers in a boarding room basement, I watch through their window well like an evening TV show whose writers are all angry drunks, and I wonder what will happen to this slightly dumpy boy's heart out of sync with his tongue, the only two muscles you really have to move with wings through this world. A shiny black SUV pulls up each Friday. He climbs in, and I wonder if I did the right thing three years back by urging my other neighbor, an old white woman, not to call the cops on him. Dear speaker, in a future age, when only a handful of lexical bouquets remain to light these monstrous highways, I write this to you as a human piece of coal, origin of orange, shelved away in some petrified repository, even as I know it's too late for you to bind and open me, even as I know yet another world language will become extinct this week, forever gone, like Atlantis or Montezuma's kingdom, Sumerian, Gothic, Koguryo, Tasmanian, Scots, Gaelic, Scots, Gaelic, Mohawk, Iroquois, like a global hurricane of power and indifference veering toward Flemish and Basque. Ainu, Anishinaabe, and yes, one day if turnabout is fair play, maybe even this language I tease apart for inconsistencies to house me. I wish I could tattoo this prayer to my palm, even as I know it's way too long, longer than my body, my whole life, this eviscerated pink and black spilling through the forest of my sleep. Though, yesterday, just another passionate Somali debate awakening me on the 21A. A mismatched couple whispering over borscht and pirashki at Kamarcheks on Hennepin. Once some Greek harangue over the baklava's freshness at Bill's imported. Ah yeah, and the fatai every Sunday I supersize whose bony broth brings tears to my eyes in Frogtown. And sometimes I know I'm just another ghost passing through the century. One of a long line of hungry souls before me, each a spiritual refugee. Dear Father, who art in heaven, who fled your homeland, war-torn in flames, I relinquish you from the preterite, spiritual RNA erased by missionaries and sunglass generals, handing out candy, cigarettes, crosses, and European names. Dear future, I'm writing you from an imperfect case in a secret code I've had to reinvent myself with. Associations and inflections, rawest of imaginations, a disciple of time, in a bulky patois, adrift, migrant with no motor, canvas, or oars, only these few city stars, faulty neon thresholds. I don't know where any of us is going, but I'm sure on the other side of the world there is a language I have never heard. It is beautiful. In this dying tongue, there are words for love and God that resemble bread and wing, or another forest language in which mother and knife equal drawer and sing. An island wood is somewhere desert milk. 
and bury. Elsewhere is a door. And if you added up all these dying words and the people who speak them, all their memories, histories, and lessons, all their gods, jokes, rituals, and recipes, if you learned and stirred them over and again until each utterance became a star, a new footprint, the marrow of a poem, Dear speaker, in a future age when not 6,000 or 3,000 or even a dozen, but only one origin of the world remains. I write this to you as an elegy. In the beginning there was a word, but it got lonely. So it prayed for brothers, sisters, and neighbors until love was born. But along with it came shame, passion, greed, benevolence, and need. And soon, some of the words became flowers and trees, and others, animals. And eventually, some were human beings, queens, and workers, kings, and thieves. So we have, I think, 12 minutes or so for questions. Um, any? Yes. Um, your words create so many pictures. And um, my first thought is that they're not written in a, sitting, in a single setting. In a single sitting, I guess. And then I, looking at your shuffling of papers, do you keep your rough drafts? Yeah, um, I do. Yeah, they, they're all over the place. And I have folders and things like that. And sometimes it's hard to tell after a while what was. I, I, I like to do it mostly on paper, so the computer, because then it just gets crazy. It's like many, too many iterations. And sometimes I'm not sure which draft you know, was the latest. And when I get to that point, I know that it's just time to stop. <laughs> yeah, back there. Yeah, sometimes um, some of them, the ones that change, I feel, are, I don't know, you know, sometimes I mess up and then I, I realize I have to kind of freestyle to get back on track. Or sometimes um, I'm not happy with the way a poem turned out. And yeah, I do keep revising. And hopefully in subsequent editions, the editor will take these, I don't know if they're corrections, revisions. Um, and then sometimes it's just, some of my poems are really long, and so for the sake of time, I kind of I condense. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, I'm going to ask you in private what they were, so I can note that. Okay, over there. Hey. Thank you. When you when you write, to whom or to what do you feel responsible? 
Hmm. So, you know, I write plays and fiction and some nonfiction. Nonfiction is really hard for me, um, like memoir stuff, and then poems. And so, you know, it depends on the form. So a, f a play is, I know it's going to be held in an open forum with an audience. And so f going back be before, you know, theater as we know, well, you know, let's say just like in the Western tradition, um, and in the East, to my knowledge, theater was a, a place where social issues of the day could be discussed and you know, um, presented and then discussed by the audience members. Not so unlike the way sometimes I hear people talking about Mad Men or Breaking Bad or whatever, you know, The Wire, people sitting around dinner talking about it. Um, not just in it talking about it artistically, but talking about it, how it relates to their lives and the country in which they live. That, so, so that's a different thing than when I'm writing a very personal lyric poem. Um, so do you, you mean poetry, I'm presuming, right? Yeah, um, I feel responsible first and foremost to, if, I'm, if there are characters in the poem, to the characters to do them justice. And even if that means they aren't shown in the most pure and glorious and flattering light, it's to get to the truth of their existences in a way that isn't diminishing or reductive, but actually expands all ideas of who these characters are. Um, and then, you know, it's also, it's just a feeling. It's sort of like if I'm singing a song, I just want to feel it at the deepest level that I can and hope everything works out for the best after that. Because if I don't do that and hit that deep, deep layer of feeling where I just feel <coughs> something, like feel alive. So I guess the first, the first and most important to me, person to me when I'm writing is me. You know, I just have I, to feel more alive than I ever normally do, and that's why I write. Um, it's a good question, though. Be thinking about that. Yeah. What poets are your major influences? Um, God, you know, I like sound-wise, I would have to say a Korean poet named Kim Sowol, who's Korean is a very um, onomatopoeic language. It's a very, um, the words sound like the objects they're describing, or the, even sometimes the concepts. It's hard to explain. I was watching this thing recently, and um, this Turkish novelist, I can't remember her name, was talking about how Turkish for her is much more romantic. She writes in both languages. It's much more romantic and mellifluous and English is much more exacting and logical and business-like and kind of detached from emotion and how she finds uses for both of those. Um, and then, you know, for those of you who know, know other languages, you know when you're speaking one, like just growing up with parents who spoke different languages and seeing the shift. It's like when I was in trouble, the English would come out and it would be very stern and, um, but when my mom was speaking Korean, a softer side of her would, would, be, would be shown, 
or revealed, almost a childlike side. And that's probably because that was the language of her childhood and English was the language of her adulthood. And so, you know, you would try gently to, if you're in trouble, to speak whatever Korean I could at the time to get her back into that other, but no, she... Um, so, Kim So-Wall, and... and um, so, when I was 17, I left home and I, I, need, I, I knew I needed to get out of Fargo and I, I had saved up for years from being a busboy and cleaning movie theaters, this money, and I would travel and um, I, would, I didn't have a lot of money and I would stop in used bookstores. And at the time, there were a lot of used bookstores all over. There weren't, you know, it, it wasn't only Barnes & Noble in most places as it is now. And so I would talk to the used bookstore owners and they were like my professors because those people really love it. They're there, they're not making a ton of money. They're there because they love books and they love to be paid to read books. And so they would always turn me on to the classics. So I remember like reading um, a lot of people turn me on to the Russians, the Russian poets and novelists. And thinking back, I think it was because there were always the classics and, and they wanted to get rid of them. Or I, I don't know, like you go to any bookstore and there's so many classics, right? And they're like a quarter a piece and no one's reading them. So anyway, I, I would re buy those for a quarter or 50 cents and read them. And, and I really got, I really loved how the Russians could write very personal human stories and also they were very political stories about nation building and where the country is going in a way that I wasn't at the time, you know, from just what little education I had in literature, wasn't seeing in, in any of the, you know, the books I had been assigned in school, you know, like, I remember The Great Gatsby. Yeah, that's, I guess you could say it's political. It's, it's speaking about American things. But the Russians would just have whole scenes at dinner tables where people are arguing over ideology. And it's engaging. It's not pedantic. Because it's not one is necessarily right and one's wrong. Um, the, the author is depicting that power and that energy and that passion that Russians, which I found when I lived there, really do have. Among other things, they're also cynical and depressive and <laughs> things like that. But, um, and then, you know, so, and then I got into Asian American writers and then writers of color. And there's so many, um, you know, uh, I was exposed to spoken word, political theater. Um, I love the writer Eduardo Galeano. Um, I like writers who, you know, Galliano, are those poems or are those, you know, essays? Are they stories or are they fables? And they're kind of everything all together. I find that really exciting. So, uh, yeah, I could go on and on, but that's some of them. Other questions? We've got time for one more. Okay, back there. Being recycled, and things are taking, taking apart, and falling apart, having to be reconstituted. 
So what do you think about the possibility for new languages and built from you know, that's the definition, that's a distinction between a dead language, like Latin, which is no longer spoken anywhere, but it kind of morphed into, and it infused, you know, French and English, and, and that's a dead language, but linguistically speaking, an extinct language no longer exists and has no purpose. It's evaporated into thin air as if, as if it never was. And um, yet we know that every language is, it's, taken eons to build up the, that vocabulary and that, that way of, of seeing the world, the cosmology, the beliefs, and the, you know, um, the creation stories and everything, the recipes, the jokes, um, the aphorisms. That's, I mean, language is technology, and that, te that te technology with the final living speaker just evaporates. So that's different. Um, only with rare exception do those and great effort are those languages like Hebrew revitalized and reanimated. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like because it's such a systematic, there, the, it, 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 it happens naturally. Um, but the rate, at, it's sort of like deforestation happens naturally, right? There are brush fires and they, but when a company goes into the rainforest and plows, you know, 40 miles, a week of rainforest for pure profit motives. And I don't think that's, that doesn't seem to me, it seems to be a different thing than natural fires that destroy swaths of forests and then they regenerate. It's sort of the difference between, you know, a person dying naturally and someone killing them. They're both death and they're both gonna happen, but they're very different. But I wanted to get back to, I'm, I've been thinking about your question, Emmanuel, and um, responsibility. And can you kind of elaborate on that? Do you mean, w w can you? Well, uh, first of all, I have to say, I can't take credit for the question. It was a question that Willie Perdomo, uh, a New Yorkian mm -hmm. uh, writer, asked a group of us writers one time after he did a reading. And I, I still, to this day, ponder that question. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I, I just feel like, as, as a writer personally, I mean, I'll give you my answer. My answer was, and I think you, you came very close to it, my answer is I feel responsible to the stories themselves, not to a particular audience or uh, anything like that, but in, in telling the story. Uh, Arundhati Roy, who's a, an Indian uh, writer, once said that writers like to believe that that, uh, that they call stories from the world. I'm beginning to think, uh, how do you say it? Writers call stories from the world. Um, I'm beginning to think it's the other way around, that, that stories call writers from the world. And mm -hmm. so I think when I think of writing and to whom I'm responsible, my, my response is the stories. And I think you, you hit very close to that in saying that, you know, the integrity and the, and the, the, you know, the dynamics of the characters and, and their experiences. So I'm always curious as, you know, to hear what other writers, you know, that, that sense of responsibility, because I feel like we, we sort of subliminally have, have that feeling when we write, even though we don't necessarily articulate it. Um, every writer struggles with that at some point if they're critical about their work. 
Yeah, so now I think, yeah, I understand your question a lot better. Thanks for elaborating. And what pops in my head is the truth. Um, <clears throat> and I, you know, it's, it, when I say the truth, it's sort of like, I guess, emotional truth to reveal something where if you just know that you've sort of, in your own work, sh gotten shed, I guess in your own person, shed. I mean, that's, that's one of the few rewards of writing, right? Is other than, you know, you, as Anais Nin, I think, said, you get to live life twice. Um, and just a, a sense of empowerment or aliveness that you can feel over the past, which we all have no power over, um, or even the future, or even the present moment sometimes. Um, the, to reveal something about the world and about people and about human nature that we don't get anywhere else, especially more and more nowadays when you know, a lot of the media and movie we receive is attached to marketing and advertisements and you know, has, a, has an agenda to sell you something before anything related necessarily to, 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 to truth. Um, and I wish I had a better word for truth. Maybe some of you do, um, because it's so overused. But that's to tell the truth. I don't know. I'm going to keep thinking about it. But thanks. All right. Thank you for coming.